Oh boy, everybody. Week two of our classic spooky film month. Here we are at Real Reels. We've got hosts, Robin. And Lisa. To share a spectacular film with you. I think to I think to call yourself truly cultured and classic film, you need to watch at least one monster movie, don't you think? Um, absolutely. And they're just fun to watch, especially now when we're so used to the CGI of today. They aren't nearly as scary as they used to be. This movie in particular scared me a lot as a kid. And um, the movie that we are watching this week is Them with an exclamation point. Yeah. Sorry to put you through that, Lisa. Reliving those traumatizing movie moments in your childhood. Yeah, it it wasn't as bad as I remembered it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about what this movie is about. Out in the desert of New Mexico, a little girl is found wandering aimlessly in her PJs. Sergeant Ben Peterson and his state trooping partner find a trailer that looks completely torn apart. The girl is in shock and can't say what happened. She also seems to be very young. Another scene of attack was discovered at a convenience store nearby, and it all points to some kind of psychotic killer, but it doesn't add up. No valuables are taken, and every crime scene seems to have more than its fair share of sugar strewn about. Furthermore, the store and camper don't just show signs of forced entry, but entire walls seem to be torn off. Sure no traffic accident, was it? Uh, This wasn't caved in, it was caved out. Did you find anything? No footprints or tire marks. Found this. I picked up just one. There's six or seven more scouted over there. Sugar. Yeah. The feds and experts soon enter the scene and the mayhem spreads, and the unexplained screechy noises don't give them any peace. The experts already have a theory about what is causing all the killings and sugar raids. And they're <laughs> right. It's gigantic monsters <laughs> who have mutated into nine to 12 foot long monsters. <laughs> They're taking all our sugar. (laughs) This rapid growth happened over the past decade after nuclear testing conducted in the area. Luckily, they find the first and only nest, and they are able to gas those guys into oblivion. But, oh shoot, the queens have already hatched, and they could be anywhere. Time is of the essence. They must find the hatched queens and obliterate these man-made abominations of nature before they spell the end of humankind. This film has everything a monster movie requires. It's got a crime-solving duo forced together by circumstances. One is a hardened federal agent, and the other is a kind-hearted state trooper who is way out of his jurisdiction, but is trying to solve it for the kids. Their expert is a grizzled and somewhat absent-minded scientist who specializes in giant ants, along with his lovely single myrmecologist daughter. That means she's an ant doctor. Who we first meet flashing leg because her skirt was caught on something. The best way to meet a female hero in a film. Legs first. (laughs) They also have a film documentary to educate the powers that be what they're up against. Eggs hatch. The giant ants infiltrate the city. It's all wrapped up in a beautiful message about not messing around with nuclear weapons. All this might seem seem a little bit familiar if you've seen any monster movies before. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
same thing has been done in movie after movie and it's almost formulaic and guess what it's because this one basically invented it this movie is as good as giant size insects as villain movies get without being far enough removed to parody itself so it takes itself seriously it's it's inventing a new genre pretty much critics gave it great reviews for having an engaging plot and a good cast and terrific monsters if you're able to suspend your belief a little bit so at the time people loved it and today people still reference it so right off the bat lisa did this film make you think of any other movies that were made in the past decades oh well yeah actually um so one thing i learned about this movie is that it was the first film to have giant insects kind of what you were saying so it really paved the way for some other really fun movies like the cult classic Tremors and the whole Godzilla storyline. They're also it's not just just big insects or big animals, but this is specifically tied to nuclear activity. So the Tremors and Godzilla is definitely following suit with this this movie. And then there's several other films as well that that have the effects of of nuclear activity. But it's funny that nuclear activity gets blamed for oversized animals because I researched it a bit because I was just wondering why that is such a common theme. And there's actually no evidence that that oversized animals or insects would be a side effect, though there's a lot of mutations recorded of animals surrounding nuclear activity, especially in Chernobyl. None of them were abnormal size and none of the animals passed those mutations on to their descendants. So the storyline of them and other movies in that genre actually aren't really feasible. Actually, the the ants in them would never be able to survive because they they actually breathe through diffusion. And so they breathe through like the surface area of their body. And if they were that size, they'd never be able to produce enough oxygen to support the size of their body. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> That'll help me sleep. In. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, though, it is, you know, this movie does have some big plot holes in it. Like, how come you don't see any other ants that are of varying sizes? It was supposed to happen gradually over a decade. Anyway, so unfounded fears. And it's interesting that you brought that up because the 1950s is a decade known for a wide range and large amount of horror films with the most imaginative antagonists and plots that films had ever seen up to that point. This is due in part by the terror surrounding the Cold War and nuclear capabilities that you talked about. And people were still coming to terms with those fears. Those working in the arts and particularly film found it a fascinating subject, regardless of the facts, the scientific facts that they did not have. <laughs> Fear of the unknown and impending doom was kind of the theme of the day. The films were largely about carrying on with a normal life until either something sinister revealed itself or a cataclysmic event happened without warning or a menacing visitor descended from space. That is basically what in the 1950s was all about is terror in all its forms yeah it's basically the the frankenstein of the day like i mean frankenstein is supposed to be talking about how humankind is flying too close to the sun and this is the same thing they're making leaps and bounds with science and nuclear activity and space and then they have all these movies 
um, warning about the after effects, which just, yeah, it's just interesting. And though today we can easily laugh at the series of B movies that were produced, although them wasn't really a, <laughs> that makes me sound like I'm saying it wrong. Them, the movie wasn't a B movie. It was actually nominated for an Oscar, but for in, in special effects. So we can laugh at some of the B movies along with the regular high budget films made during that time. And I think, you know, one notable one is Attack of the 50 Foot Woman. When it was new, I'm pretty sure people were laughing at that one. I don't think anyone really <laughs> that super seriously, but they're they're just fun. They're just fun films. And, you know, people enjoy getting a little bit scared. And the interesting special effects and the puppetry of the monsters and camera tricks that they employed made films interesting and enjoyable on a whole new level. Them, for example, they worked so hard on making those ants believable. And even to the color coloring of the ants, they actually, it was supposed to be shot in color. But yeah. technical difficulties with the studio and funding issues, they only filmed the title sequence in color and the rest was in black and white. So you never get to appreciate how hard they worked on the actual ants themselves, but they only made three ants for the whole movie and just kept moving them around <laughs> for different shots. And they do, it does give the impression there are more. It's very cleverly done. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I also found out that they were trying to, to make it a 3d movie, which is why there's so many shots of, the people blowing their flamethrower right at the crowd because it was supposed to be blowing right in their faces. And then the, the them title scene is it's dual colored so that it could be seen in 3d. That's pretty cool. I didn't even know they did 3d movies back then. I didn't either. <laughs> I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> um, yeah. And of course the addition of eerie sound effects really sells the fear and tension in the movie. Right. Yeah. Those sound effects really affect me in this movie and in Forbidden Planet. It, it just added so much apprehension for me. Um, they, them with an exclamation point, <laughs> the movie, them actually won a golden reel award for best sound effects in 1955. And the sound effects for the ants was made from a combination of birds and frogs. So clever. Yeah. <laughs> it's super creepy. Honestly, them is a good one, but there are so many. And even recommendations have come in for other favorites. But even if you haven't seen any uh, monster movies, you'll no doubt see inside jokes about the genre. I've heard people say things like, it's the creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a reference to the movie of the same name. A giant creature or person walking the streets of a city is a reference to this decade, decade of movies. Like in movies, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, or An Unknown Mutated Creature Wreaking Havoc on a Town was done, in my opinion, expertly in Tremors. <laughs> yeah. Even Jura in Jurassic Park and its sequels have elements of original monster movies in them, especially the second one, where the dinosaurs are in New York City. And you have to have kids to know this, I think, but even the Magic School Bus has an episode 
that teaches about spiders when the kids get sucked into a drive-in movie with a gigantic praying mantis. It's being referenced all the time because of these movies. Very much about culture here. These are American roots here. Monster movies. <laughs> So one of the things my kids like to look for in movies in general, not every movie, but they just like to keep their ears open is for something called the Wilhelm scream. So you knew about this before this movie? Well, yes. So my kids had heard of it and I don't know if they knew the name of the scream, but they had heard of it. it. Yes. And it was something that they're like, hey, that's the same scream. Some movie buffs might recognize it. This is a pretty early (laughs) use of the sound effect, actually, before it was a funny inside joke. So if you were watching it back then, it was not called the Wilhelm scream. It was just a soundbite that the studio had of someone screaming. The scream actually was recorded for a Western film earlier called Distant Drums, And the characters were wading through an alligator-infested swamp, and one alligator leaps up and drags a character to his death. It became a stock sound for the studio and only used occasionally, like in them. It would be decades later that Ben Burt, the sound effects guy, who we talked about in a previous episode about Forbidden Planet, by the way, he heard it in another Western film. It was meant to be the scream of a character called Colonel Wilhelm. And he thought it was pretty funny. And he started working it into a lot of different projects as sort of an inside joke to himself. <laughs> ben Burt did the sound effects for Star Wars. And other folk oh. in film caught on to him doing it. And the joke spread and it became nicknamed the Wilhelm scream. And so for a long time, no one really knew who initially recorded the scream because it wasn't credited. It was just a soundbite. But they did some digging and looking through timestamps and whatnot. And this whole tidbit about the Wilhelm scream has a gloriously happy ending because it turns out that it was recorded by the man who is best known for the purple people eater. (laughs) I couldn't ask for a better piece of movie trivia to take up space in my brain, honestly. (laughs) Right. I know I'm going to notice the scream from now on as I watch films. And uh, they actually use it four different times in them for different characters, which I thought was funny. And I'm just kind of wondering why they didn't have the actual characters scream on their own. (laughs) You know, for our listeners, this might surprise them how into classic film we were. But there was a time when we would watch old TV programs from the 1950s, like a, the Jack Benny show or the um, Ed Sullivan shows, which is so funny that we did that. But there was this one game show that we watched and it was like a guess your career episode. And the lady was a professional screamer. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> how weird, what a weird job. You just really, there's there's only a select few people that can scream authentically like they mean it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it would be hard for me to do, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and by the way, keep your eyes open for Leonard Nimoy. I think that's how you say his name. The original Mr. Spock from Star Trek. He is the character who receives the telegram about the pilot seeing flying saucers. So super young Mr. Spock in them. So we've already talked about a lot of scenes in this movie, but let's talk about our favorite scenes, Lisa. Why don't you start? So my favorite scene was actually 
I I really liked the intro scene where the little girl is walking around. I just thought that she did such a great job. Yeah, it's the the little Ellison girl, and her name is Sandy Desher. And she just really sold being in shock and being just scared. It may provide the jolt you need. Thank you. I, I thought she did an amazing job. And in the, the last scene, there's a couple little boys who are trapped in the tunnels with the ants. And I was just trying, I was comparing a little bit their fear compared with her fear. And hers seemed much more realistic than theirs. Theirs seemed a bit more acty, I guess. So she did a great job. Yeah, she was super cute. And yeah, looked super terrified. She did a great job. I really like the beginning scenes as well because I think they, before you see the monsters and the eeriness and the tension build up is done really well. And of course, we, we have to mention how much we like the climax of the movie, right? Right. <laughs> I think that the middle drags a little bit and the end is really great when they end up being in the city in LA and the final showdown and the rescue scene. Something else I wanted to mention is I liked how the federal agent and state trooper became a team going after the ants in the movie. Like it seemed uh, it seemed almost like a missed opportunity, though, because I don't want to be too picky about the film since it was just an early one. But I wish they had capitalized on those two personalities a little bit more focused on the two of them a little bit more because they had this camaraderie. Like their friendship. Yeah, their friendship and making them a little bit more distinct from each other because they do end up becoming close by the end of the film, but not really in a way that we were, we could tell from the the movie. And it almost had this X-Files feel about it. I mean, any, any show that had, has two partners working together on a supernatural or unexplained event, it's, you know, again, inspired so many things after it if i could do a remake today i would definitely have capitalized more on the two main officers looking into the into the into them yeah they definitely didn't have like a ton of character development in this movie it didn't seem like that was what the movie was about it seemed like the the message was definitely the the ants and what they were doing and just trying to figure out how to stop them but yeah not a whole lot of of depth into the characters themselves. Right. But it's funny that you mention um, a remake because apparently there was, I think this year there's, there was announced that they were going to be remaking the movie. No, way. I don't know when it'll be done. I did see someone who rescored it. Like I saw a guy who wanted to redo the, um, I don't know if it was the sound effects or the music or whatever, but that's interesting. And actually I heard that they referenced it in a Marvel movie. I think it was with Ant-Man. Like he he said, it's done or oh. something like that. Yeah. I want to say that there was like maybe another reference to it too. I thought that I saw like the movie playing in the background or something of the, that movie. Yeah. I think there have been more examples of it because uh, and so maybe it's having a bit of a of a revival of some kind, which would be great. Yeah. I love seeing classics being revived, 
really, we could do our podcast just on horror and sci-fi films of the 1950s. More people have recommended movies to us, which I'm excited to do all of them. And we would have plenty to talk about just in a podcast about 1950s sci-fi and horror films. Them is a good one to start with, though. And my kids saw this one and got excited during the more intense scenes and they didn't like the sound effects, but still watched it with no bug-related nightmares. So I think it's very family-appropriate. Yeah. There's more. That I don't I- know how my kids would do, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll try it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you were traumatized by it. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we have two more classic spooky podcasts coming this month. And we're amping it up a little, as promised. Next week's film is going to be what Stephen King said was the scariest movie of all time. See if you agree with that or not next week. See you then.